All right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavas. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cava Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII delivering the advantage. Coming up, the U.S. Navy's largest mishap involving almost a dozen destroyers occurred off the coast of California 100 years ago. What lessons from the infamous Honda Point incident remain relevant today? And what can we learn from the introduction of new technology, whether it be uncrewed or advanced manufacturing? We talked to noted retired Navy captain and navalist Dr. Jerry Hendricks for his take, as well as a look at breaking news out of the Black Sea. A quick show note, given the length of our conversation with Jerry and the fact that my colleague Chris Cavus is underway on board USS George Washington, we will forego our normal weekly review of headlines and jump right into the Honda Point conversation. Don't worry, Chris will be back next week with great fleet content and a return to our normal run of show. Without further ado, here's our discussion with Dr. Hendricks. The largest peacetime loss of U.S. Navy ships took place just over 100 years ago, on September 8, 1923, at Honda Point, California. Fourteen U.S. destroyers in line ahead were moving down the coast from San Francisco, headed to San Diego but a navigation error set them too close to shore, and one by one, seven of the destroyers ran aground on the rocks at Honda Point. All seven were lost, 23 sailors were lost. There was a major scandal, a major investigation, and so far there's never been anything like it. Here to give us some insight into this disaster is Jerry Hendricks, former director of Naval History of the U.S. Navy, a noted navalist and a friend of the podcast. Jerry, welcome back to the pod. Good morning, Chris. It's good to be here. So, Jerry, um, you know, the people have been looking at in, into ship accidents as long as there have been ships. This was an accident that was a major scandal. Most navies don't lose seven ships at once during peacetime. As you've been looking into this, what really are some of the lessons here? There are leadership lessons, there are operational lessons, there are navigational lessons. But what, what really strikes you about this incident? Well, Chris, I think it's important to sort of step back and put this incident in broader context uh, historically. One of the things that that is driving this, so, you know, Destroyer Squadron 11 sets out from San Francisco. It's got a job to steam down the coast to, to from San Francisco Bay to the Navy base at San Diego base. And because this is 1923 and there's a lot of uh, financial pressure upon the Navy, the Navy is going through significant cutbacks. Uh, in its budget, uh, they're cutting both manpower and the number of ships in the battle force. And these these uh, these 14 ships are, are part of the Clemson class. So all of these ships are less than five years old, um, but there are already cuts going on within that class. So we talk about LCS today and the fact that we're cutting LCS very early in their lives. Well, we were cutting these Clemson class destroyers uh, left and right, as well as other previous classes. And so there was a lot of pressure on the operational Navy to sort of justify their reason for being. And so there had been a fleet order given to this destroyer squadron, destroyer squadron 11, 14 ships, as you said, line ahead to, to race down the Pacific coast. They were, they were there to set a fleet record during their transit. 
So they've been ordered and authorized by the fleet commander to proceed at 20 knots, uh, which which is rather, rather rapid uh, in, in a peacetime situation. And they were both going after a record, but they were also testing the Clemson classes uh, long range turbines. They wanted to see how those uh, those turbine engines were going to perform over this longer distance. So here they are. They're about 13 hours into this transit down the coast, uh, making 20 knots. Uh, and obviously, they were navigating by dead reckoning, um, which was just, you know, figuring out the number of turns per screw and how much they were going to advance through the water and sort of just, you know, doing a DR on their chart, dead reckoning. They had access to new electronic navigation, sort of uh, direction finding aids that were on shore. Um, and in fact, there were junior officers on board that were taking these direction finding or DF cuts as they were going along. And these junior officers were noting that the, where they thought they were on their charts, where, where the, the ship's navigators were putting them on their charts, was not where the DF was showing. But the more senior officers who had sort of a hesitance about this new high-tech uh, capability of the DF finder chose to ignore those and just go with their DR understanding of where they were in the water. And so, you know, when the moment of this incident occurs, the Commodore and his squadron navigator, who were both senior officers, made a decision that they were going to turn left, take a course of uh, 095, proceeding into the Santa Barbara Channel, but the problem was they were about four miles too early. They were four miles north of the point where they were supposed to turn. Due to some changes in the currents, there had been uh, there had been other groundings even within the last 24 to 48 hours ahead of this. There was some thought that a huge earthquake in Japan uh, in the preceding five days had caused a shift in the currents across the entire Pacific. And the and the bottom line was they were in they were in line ahead with 250 yard spacing between them. Now at 20 knots, 250 yards uh, is essentially less than uh, 20 seconds in spacing between them. And they were in fog. So suddenly, you know, these ships just start hitting into these rocks and they are too closely spaced and they're going too fast. And essentially the first seven ships of the squadron uh, ground and essentially destroy themselves. I mean, they ground so hard that there's no way that they, they're going to get off. The next two ships in the squadron, so let's just say ships eight and nine, they also ground, but they had already begun backing down. And so they were able to back off and save themselves. And then the remaining ships in the fleet are in that squadron. The other five ships, they, they were not damaged. But the, the big thing about this is because this is peacetime, uh, everyone you know essentially started looking for heads. And despite the fact that there was a fleet order that they should do this, uh, there was no top cover for the squadron commodore. He, and, and by the way, he he very, in, in the greatest traditions of the Navy, he took full responsibility for the incident upon his shoulders. Uh, but he and 11 other officers, this is, by the way, the largest general court-martial that the United States Navy had ever gone through. We, we court-martialed 11 senior officers within this squadron, most of whom uh, were found guilty, some of which were then, their their sentences were commuted, but most of them suffered both reduction in rank and loss of numbers. Uh, their careers were uh, effectively over at that point in time. Um, there's also a lesson of this, Chris, that uh, the Secretary of the Navy leaned in on this very early. So Secretary Denby, 
who had sort of an interesting background. He had served both as an enlisted sailor and as an enlisted Marine, working his way up to become an officer in the Marine Corps. And he kind of had a grudge, uh, a, a known reputation for being uh, not not being really uh, in love with Annapolis graduates. Um, and so he had leaned in on this prior to them even going to a general court and sort of pre-decided the outcome of the case. And that that caused a lot of controversy because it's generally the role of the SECNAV to kind of step back and and just keep his mouth shut until the the Navy administrative process and judicial process. But Denby got very involved in this very early. There was a, I, I'm, I think you saw it. There was an excellent article in the in the recent issue of Naval History magazine by Kenneth Braithwaite and Charles Robbins, essentially focusing on Denby's role, Secretary of the Navy Denby's role in this disaster, um, and putting a lot of things into context. This was uh, Edwin Denby, but it was in the middle of the Teapot Dome scandal which was a which up until watergate was the, was the largest scandal ever to really hit the u.s navy u.s government um there was there was a lot of background in that there was there were all these other political pressures going on and what i what i like about when you when you read this is that through history it really focuses down to it comes down to us so almost superficially as these destroyers ran aground it was a big accident should never have happened but as you look into it it is complex. It's not unlike the situations today. There's a lot more to it. It's not. It's not a simple um, matter of, of navigation. But there was also technology in here. So, um, you know, this is this is in the days before radar. There is no radar. Um, you, you're just looking at things. You're you're navigating by sight. There is no sight here because of the because of the fog. It's night. Dead reckoning. I'm simply, I'm simply looking at line of advance. I'm going so fast that at a certain speed, I was here. I know that. I am reckoning that I'm here, and now I'm here, and I'm here. So you make a turn based on on all these calculations, but no real hard evidence. the The squadron, the 14 ships, are in line ahead, one right after another, following the light, the stern light of the ship in front of them. That's all people can see. Follow that light, one after the other. So we're depending on the lead on, on this on the navigator and the lead ship, the Denby, the the uh, Delphi, to to be correct. But one of the one of the things that comes out in the charges, if not not all the final findings, is that everyone else, the navigators, the, the commanding officers of the other destroyers and their navigators should have been doing their own dead reckoning, coming up with their own conclusions and deciding whether or not we're in the right place or not, as well as the squadron leader. So how, you know, at some point, what is your responsibility to, to maintain formation and also to, 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 to pull an independent assessment of these, of the, of the situation. Uh, this is, this is, the, this is the kind of thing that reverberates throughout multiple investigations over time. And of course, in our time on the planet, um, there have been a number of things where these issues still come up. Um, did you have, yeah, I think I, I think the other thing about this is you you light upon a, a great point here, which was, you know, the if there's one thing the court martial taught is that commanding officers of ships are going to be held responsible for what happens to their ship. It does not matter that there was a squadron order. It did not matter that their commodore had told them to do this. Uh, when when it comes before the court, um, what matters is you know what happens to you and your ship. You are ultimately responsible. I think this this suggested a sea change that occurs in the Navy 
uh, after that, where these younger commanding officers, and let's face it, you know, we're, we're talking about lieutenants and lieutenant commanders in command of ships at this point in time. There, there are two 206s, two captains in this, uh, in this, uh, this squadron, the Commodore, and then uh, his, he's got a senior navigator that's along. Um, but most of the people were what we would call junior officers today, junior even in their experience and their graduation dates from the academy. And so these guys get taught a powerful lesson, which is, uh, and that goes throughout the fleet, which is you are responsible for your ship. So there were uh, navigators who were advising their commanding officer, this is wrong, Skipper. You know, we have got this DF cut. Or, you know, I'm suggesting, you know, there was one navigator who was aware of these currents that were, were ebbing throughout the Pacific and that may have been retarding their advance as they come down the coast. And he was trying to advise this commanding officer and the commanding officer chose to ignore his own staff so that because he was listening to his Commodore or following his Commodore's orders. I think that this sort of helped to justify and strengthen the idea of individual command, individual responsibility, which by the way, is something I think that we've moved away from today because everyone from, you know, from uh, fleet command on down because of communications that we have, you know, you have four-star admirals that are able to reach into individual ship commands now and direct what happens to them. I think we've lost that sense of autonomy. This was a moment where the sense of autonomy and individual responsibility grew in the fleet. That helped us, actually, as we got into the Pacific War, because that was a sea change in the culture after the Honda Point incident. So I think that, you know, again, contextually, this is much more complex. It's a, also a much more important incident in the Navy's history that actually helps set us up for the win in World War II. I just was going to jump in and kind of share just a few things that kind of dovetail with both of you. Um, I, I was not familiar with Honda Point prior to us deciding that we wanted to talk about it. Chris uh, passed along that that article and I, I read it and then kind of did some digging uh, last night. What jumped out at me was, boy, you couldn't come up with a better example of the Swiss cheese model um, than, than this, right? As things start to stack up, as we've talked about before, it's not just one thing that leads to a, um, a mishap that there are normally a, a number of factors that had you addressed, you probably could have uh, prevented it. The second is, is I, I couldn't help but think of the parallels between the Fitzgerald and McCain um, in terms of uh, issues leading up to those um, mishaps and then how it was handled after the fact. The third thing that jumped out at me is, is boy, the Navy sucks at using history um, to learn and to continue to pull on threads of incidents like the Honda Point. Jerry, uh, I'd interested in your, your take on that because I know that's near and dear to you. And then lastly, I thought of the, you know, Secretary Modley um, and his experiences with the TR in terms of, you know, how the Secretary of the Navy sometimes becomes the embodiment of a problem because they're the political figure. Um, I, I, I know that's a lot, but I'd be interested in you, uh, Jerry or Chris, responding. Uh, uh, so, go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, so I, I think, uh, I'll, yeah, I'll lean in on that. I mean, one of the things that that uh, Chris Harella just said that I, I find, you know, that's, that's particularly powerful is, you know, I really do, I've always believed in leveraging history to inform policy. Um, you know, there's something I've been doing a lot of reading on Winston Churchill, and, and one of Churchill's comments was, uh, the farther back uh, you look into history, the farther forward you can see. Understanding the context of the ebbs and tides and currents of, of human history is understanding kind of where you're at and where you're going. 
And so as I look at this, you know, Honda Point absolutely, you know, informed the way that I looked at the uh, Fitzgerald uh, uh, and McCain incident when those things occurred, specifically on the breakdown, uh, command and control on the bridge, uh, as well as understandings of training and responsibility um, amongst uh, senior officers. Uh, so I think that it was very, uh, as, as I reviewed the accident report of those two ships uh, in that year, and, and not to mention the fact that we had had a grounding and another uh, slight collision in, the, in that same year, it, it, it took my mind instantly back to this. And so, yes, contextually as a historian, you know, I always tend to look back in order to understand current context and the way you go forward. And I, and I certainly encourage and wish that others would do that more. We, uh, as Americans, have this tendency culturally to think that we recreate the world anew every day, that somehow we have this ability and it's part of who we are as a people and it's part of what makes us great. But at the same time, we, we sort of lack a grounding and understanding how deep our history is or what has come before this. You know, the other thing, and I mentioned this to Chris Cavis uh, yesterday when we were on the phone, um, you know, this is very similar actually to a, a very famous incident with the Royal Navy, uh, where there was an entire squadron of ships that, that grounded that with a huge loss of life during the age of sail. And it was actually that grounding incident that caused for uh, the act of Queen Anne that essentially created the search for longitude, a method to determine longitude that led to the creation of the Harrison clocks, a uh, very famous, famously uh, depicted in, in Davis Oval's book, uh, Longitude. And so, you know, accidents like this can teach and can advance you. And certainly things like radar and DF finding and navigation aids then became much more prevalent within the Navy. Again, this accident, although tragic, loss of 23 sailors' lives uh, and the loss of seven ships, uh, did help to advance the Navy. Uh, but again, I, I would just come back and say, you know, another thing to keep in mind just contextually is that the Navy had already been ordered to decrease the number of destroyers by 150. We had cut 150 destroyers and some 92 other ships ahead of this. So there was a lot of pressure on the fleet. If you want to know why you're going 20 knots in fog, there's a lot of pressure in the fleet. And that pressure was fiscal, financial, strategic, and political. There was one more technical aspect about this that I've always found interesting. And that's that. So in this, in this day and age, in that, in that day and age, 100 years ago, uh, radio had become more common. But the idea of, of navigation by radio was still new and still being implemented. So along the coast of California, a series of radio beacons had been sent up. And of course, all navies, um, all major navies were investing in these sorts of radio beacons to help their ships do, do a better, more precise navigational fix everywhere. Uh, the the uh, network was, the network on the California coast was up, it was running, it was fairly new, but the idea of using radio beacons was still pretty new. And it's a new technology. People are using, people had grown up and been taught about this is how you do navigation. The, the Jerry just talked about uh, some of the other navigators were saying we're in the wrong place based on not just dead reckoning, but they're looking at, at all the radio signals themselves saying we're off. The flagship in this in, in Squadron 11 here had the had the correct radio fixes, but the navigator thought it thought they were wrong. He didn't trust the new technology. He thought his dead reckoning was was correct. He went on his he, he, he disregarded the radio signals, 
he his own decision based on dead reckoning. And there's this issue about reliance on new technology and how do you use to new new technology. There's you know in World War II the U.S. Navy had radar uh, as, as a major advance of advantage over the Japanese. It took a lot of people getting killed and a lot of mistakes being made before people learned how to use it properly. I'm always thinking about the Vincennes incident in 1988 when the when the cruiser Vincennes in the Persian Gulf with a brand new high technology Aegis system, major advance on what had been around before, totally misread the uh, the flight characteristics of a passenger liner, an Iranian passenger liner, and thought it was an attacking fighter and shot it down. Meanwhile, not far away, a, an American frigate with a much more rudimentary combat system has a better better understanding of the tactical picture and doesn't understand what they're doing. There's still lessons to be involved in, to, to be resolved from that. Um, Jerry, did anything really pop out at you about that? Do you, do you, do you, do you see parallels? Oh, ab absolutely. And, and that's one of the reasons, you know, we all, we all like to think today that somehow our world is much more complicated, much more uh, technically challenging and so on. Uh, right. Understand these ships were five years old. Um, they were the cutting edge in naval uh, capabilities at that time. And, and DF direction, you know, radio direction finding was the leading edge, you know, being able to tune to the frequency, be able to get your antenna to be able to get sort of, you know, understand what the, uh, you know, what your ambiguity was with, within the line that you were able to shoot from that antenna. This was the most advanced electronics that we had, uh, not only in the U.S. Navy, but quite frankly, in the country at the time. Um, and so, you know, every day, you know, we, we think that somehow, you know, we're so much more complex. I, I remember talking with somebody um, uh, about the comparison between what we're doing today uh, with hypersonics and then what we did in the 1950s on ballistic missiles. And everyone says, well, this is so much more complex. And I said, no, it's not. You got to understand, this was literally rocket science. These were the most advanced, you know, uh, you know, capabilities. This at that time, um, you know, uh, was the most advanced capabilities. And we had trouble integrating and accepting it into the fleet because we didn't trust the newness of it. So, Jerry, let, let's fast forward to today. Um, I, again, another thing that jumped out at me as I uh, tried to learn the lessons from 100 years ago, do we run the risk or um, are we setting ourselves up for unmanned or uncrewed technology being that um, that cultural and techno technological leap that we don't trust um, because, you know, either it wasn't what we were raised on or that there's not enough information in the fleet. I mean, in, in the case of the Honda Point, it was navigation, but I could easily see in five to 10 years, folks not trusting, you know, the info that they're getting from uncrewed um, uh, in, you know, ISR platforms or, or un, you know, being reluctant to pull the trigger, if you will, with an un, uncrewed platform. Y your thoughts on that and then how to, how that dovetails into maybe Secretary uh, Kath Hicks's announcement about Replicator. I, I, I'm trying to, you know, kind of dovetail these two topics because I, I think that there are um, some similarities um, between incidents like Honda Point and the introduction of new technology, like what we heard from uh, DepSec Def Hicks over the last couple of weeks. So there's a lot to cover in that. So I, I think, yes, uh, there is an excuse today that, you know, we need uh, a man on the loop. We need uh, eyes on target before you can start looking, thinking about things like unmanned uh, in, in a lethal way. 
So we seem to be very comfortable with the idea of unmanned sensor packages that add, we're very uncomfortable with, at least in the Navy context, with the idea of an unmanned platform as a shooter. Uh, because we need to make sure that we, in a wartime situation, can confirm, can confirm, you know, eyes on target. And in fact, we know what the target is and, and we determine the threat before we have that weapons release. I think that, that that runs counter to what we've already done. We've been flying actually unmanned, uh, armed unmanned uh, assets from U.S. Navy assets, you know, going back almost to Desert Storm. We've had automated AI-related capabilities in the fleet since we got the Ticonderoga class in, uh, which had an automated Aegis mode where we just go full auto with Aegis in the event of a of a you know a regimental backfire bomber formation coming in. We knew that the humans were not going to be able to make decisions quick enough, and so we had already said we trust AI back in the 1970s. Uh, the SeaWiz system has a full auto mode uh, where we would just turn on SeaWiz and let it go. Um, so we've, we've, we've had this context in the past. I think that there is a, a, almost a cultural resistance to unmanned today within the United States Navy because we have so much sunk cost investment in manned assets. And so the manned communities have sensitivities right now uh, for instance, in naval aviation, uh, the guys who've got all the deck space on the carrier deck are very concerned about giving up deck space to an unmanned asset or giving up a mission like long-range penetrating strike to uh, an unmanned vehicle that, that, quite frankly, will take away a command opportunity or a seat for a pilot. Uh, I think that there's also similar concerns in the submarine community as well as surface community about what this is going to mean. Now, with regard to Deputy Secretary Hicks and, and what she's trying to do with Replicator, I'm a little concerned that that's, in fact, going a little bit too light, that, in fact, this is kind of the these aren't the droids we're looking for approach to unmanned in that we're looking at a, a, a few small but numerous unmanned capabilities uh, that really aren't adding to the lethality of the fleet. They may be giving us additional sensors uh, but with Hicks not dedicating a specific budget or specific missions to these things, this may just simply be a hand wave as a distraction uh, in her further efforts to do the divest to invest. She wants to get rid of a lot of the older platforms in order to invest in newer platforms, but she hasn't really defined what those newer platforms are going to do. I'm all in for unmanned. I think anyone who's read me over the years or listened to me understands I want to integrate medium and large unmanned vessels into the fleet as well as unmanned aviation assets, but I want them to be at the, at the spear point. Uh, I want them deep into the combat zone, both as sensors and shooters, and I, I want to see that game plan coming forward with this. So uh, jumping real quick, so taking the unmanned even and even further into current operations. So as we speak, um, it's only been hours since a, a what an apparent Ukrainian attack on the Russian naval base in Sevastopol. This has created some serious damage. Uh, uh, pictures are emerging as we're speaking of a Russian landing ship, uh, amphibious ship, the Minsk, which is looks pretty darn destroyed, if not uh, if not heavily damaged. The Russians are already claiming they're going to repair the ship, but this is uh, yet another event in this in in, in the russian ukrainian war where <clears throat> new technologies seem to be coming to the fore new tactics this is an old tactic but maybe new but um, no old, old old idea striking the enemy's naval base but using new tactics 
Um, Jerry, what do you think so far? What are you seeing as as the sun comes up? Everything is unconfirmed. This is all still happening. As we're yeah, for, first reports uh, are always cloudy, but but the reports that I've seen is that you know first of all there was a uh, an attack on the Sevastopol naval base uh, that a dry dock um, was damaged, and let's face it, dry docks are the golden goose. They are the things that produce ships or repair ships. They are the critical juncture point in, in any sort of a naval industrial base, uh, both because of their production and repair capacity. So if the dry docks hit, that's a huge strategic blow. Uh, there's been a report that a kilo class uh, has been damaged. That really doesn't bother me submarine. that much because kilo I think class submarine. kilo class submarine, uh, SSN, um, not SSN, I'm sorry, uh, a, a diesel electric boat. But the kilo has not really been effective, and we haven't had reports of the kilos being out. What really strikes me is the report of the Rapuchka uh, class, uh, essentially an LST, um, which is a utility vessel and an amphib, that it has been damaged and, and may be out of action for a prolonged period of time. That has been the utility infielder for the Russians in this entire area. That would have huge implications logistically for them as well as operationally. Uh, but just the fact that the Ukrainians were at last able to hit this Sevastopol base. This, by the way, was the thing that made news last week because uh, Elon Musk suspended Starlink coverage for you know portions of Ukraine because he got wind that the Ukrainians wanted to use Starlink to, to help in this type of a raid. And he did not want uh, Starlink to contribute to a dramatic escalation of the war. And so far, again, first reports this morning, I have not seen a launch of nuclear weapons from uh, from Putin's Russia in response to this. So I'm not seeing uh, the escalation yet. That being said, uh, we may see escalation. Certainly, this is going to anger Putin because it's destruction of his industrial base. It's destruction of his navy. Um, and it's a but to me, this is sort of the natural extension of a campaign by Ukraine to recover their sovereign territory, which has been taken from them and through an illegal, uh, you know, intrusion invasion into their into their country. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. We're uh, out of time. Uh, Jerry, thank you very much. We covered a lot of ground um, from Honda Point to Replicator to um, ongoing actions in the Black Sea. That's why we love having you on. Uh, there are a few people that can cover down uh, on as many topics. Um, thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to having you back on uh, in the near future. Always a pleasure to talk with you guys. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Baradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavaliers podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.